Hey True Central, um, this is Pastor Rob for this first um, message in Mark. This is going to be an introduction, so it's not like a true, it's not going to be a true exposition, um, but it's also, it's a survey. It's an overview of the book of Mark. It's going to introduce it to you. Think of it as kind of like a movie preview or a movie trailer into the book of Mark. So let's begin by a word of prayer and then we'll get started. Let's pray. Uh, Father God, we ask for your Spirit's help now as we dive into the book of Mark and get a big picture idea, a big picture look of what you have to teach us and show us uh, in this Gospel of Mark. Uh, help us to be attentive to you now, and would you continue to work in and, in and through us to make us more like Jesus Christ. Uh, bless his time. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So the title of this message is a big picture look at Mark. A big picture look at Mark. So consider this message a pregame message. And what I mean by that is in the sports world, athletes have a pregame routine. They all have ways that they prepare themselves for game day. And whether that be stretching, warming up, watching film, or practicing, uh, even the food and drinks they put into their bodies are carefully considered. The pregame routine is important because it's preparation for the main event and the pregame routine is crucial groundwork and it's necessary for excelling when it's game time so before we strap ourselves in before we put on our thinking caps before we take a journey into the gospel of mark we're going to do the important work of pregame in other words rather than driving diving straight into chapter 1 verse 1 we're going to do a big picture look at mark we're going to survey the land which is the book of mark and the focus of the lens will be broad and wide as we capture an aerial view of the book. Inevitably, that includes the dreadful words of background and context. And many of you, when you hear those words, background and context, may be tempted to zone out. You may be thinking that's boring, useless information. However, I want you to um, not tune out so fast, right? The background and context are foundational to understanding and having a good grasp on the Gospel of Mark. So rather than tuning out, this is the time to listen well. And you can think of it this way. You can think of the content of the book of Mark uh, as food, okay? You can think of it as food. And we understand that you can't serve food without a plate. So consider the background information to be the plate. So we see how necessary and important it is to our understanding. In the same way you need the background and context to hold the con in the same way you need the background and context to hold the content of the book. So let's get into the pregame. So we're going to look at five areas of the book that will give you a big picture look so that you'll be familiar and be better understand the background information of the Gospel of Mark. So if you're taking notes, the five areas are the author the audience, the arrangement, the aim, and the application. So author, aim, arrangement, aim, and application. The first thing is the author. This answers the question, who wrote the Gospel of Mark? Or who is the author? And like the other Gospel books, Matthew, Luke, and John, the name of the book is named after the author. So very simply, the author of the Gospel of Mark is Mark. But to better understand who Mark was, we're going to look at other portions of scripture where he's mentioned in order to get a profile to help us understand more about him. In Colossians chapter 4 verse 10, we're told that 
Mark was a cousin of Barnabas. He was also a Jewish Christian whose mother Mary owned a home in Jerusalem where the core of the original Christian community met. In other words, Mark's mother, mother's home in Jerusalem served as a gathering place for the early church. And it was to this home in Jerusalem that Peter went after his miraculous release from prison. And we find that account in Acts chapter 12 verses 6 through 11. If you remember, Peter was chained up and sleeping between two soldiers. Then an angel suddenly appears and wakes him up. His chains fall off miraculously. He gets dressed, walks past the first guard, and then the second guard, moving towards the exit gate leading into the city. And as he approaches the gate, it opens up on its own, and he is freed. And after Peter realizes this, his first action is to go to Mark's mother's home in Jerusalem. And we read about this in Acts chapter 12, verse 12. It says, When he, or Peter, realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. So we notice that it says John, whose other name was Mark. Mark is mentioned several times in the book of Acts with his Jewish name, John. We see this also in verse 25 of chapter 12 and in verse 37 and 39 in chapter 15. So the book of Acts also reveals to us that Mark accompanied Barnabas and Paul on part of their first missionary journey. The key words there being part of, right? Barnabas was the cousin of Mark and it's probable that he persuaded Paul to take along Mark, who at this point would have been a young man. And in Acts 13 verses 4 and 5, it says, Being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they, Barnabas and Paul, went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. John there referring to Mark. So we see that Mark was with them in the beginning. However, we find out in Acts 13, 13, not too many verses after what, the, what I just read, that, that Mark abandoned Barnabas and Paul, and then he returned to Jerusalem. Acts 13, 13 says, Now Paul and his companions set sail for Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Again, John there referring to Mark. So as you can imagine, Paul was not very pleased with Mark. The young Mark abandoned or deserted, left, departed, or even called it quits on Barnabas and Paul. And Paul didn't take that lightly, and he regarded Mark's actions as inexcusable and irresponsible. And all of this came to a troublesome end when Paul and Barnabas planned to go on a second missionary journey. They would visit the same cities that they went on their first journey, and they're going to uh, except this time, Paul refused to take Mark along with them. Paul was not having it with Mark because of what happened during the first journey. On the other hand, Barnabas wanted Mark with them again. So now there's this dilemma of what to do. Barnabas and Paul can't agree on whether to take Mark with them or not. And sadly, this conflict between the two of them caused them to part ways from each other. And we read about this in Acts chapter 15, verses 36 to 41. It says, After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in 
Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Verse 39 says, And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So this disagreement between Paul and Barnabas caused them to separate from each other. And Barnabas and Mark returned to Cyprus to strengthen the churches there. And Paul and Silas gave oversight to churches in Syria and Cilicia. So let me ask you, can you identify with Mark? You know, his life was not one without bumps in the road. His life was not free from stresses and difficulties. His life was not one with perfect relationships and perfect friendships. His life was one in which he let others down. His life was one in which he wasn't ready for the task given to him. However, we learn that although Mark didn't start off well, he did finish well, which is the more important part. The beginning of his life may be marked by his desertion of Barnabas and Paul, but he eventually learned his lesson and his immaturity turned into maturity and faithfulness and ministry usefulness to both Paul and Peter. Mark learned from his failures and his mistakes and became useful in ministry. And it wouldn't be until about 10 years later that we see references to Mark again in scripture. We find out that Mark, he became a valued member of Paul's ministry team. And in Colossians 4.10 and 11, we're told that um, it says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him, and Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. So Paul tells the Colossians to welcome, welcome Mark as a fellow worker for the kingdom of God, who has proven to be a comfort to Paul, or he's proven to be an encouragement to Paul. And the same thing in Philemon, verse 24, uh, Paul again mentions Mark as a fellow worker. Uh, both Colossians and Philemon are written by Paul during his imprisonment while he was under house arrest in Rome. And Mark is with him in both of these references that I just mentioned. Uh, we know Paul would eventually be released from that house arrest but later on, he would be again imprisoned, but this time he would not uh, be released. And this comes at the very end of his life as he's writing the book of 2 Timothy. So the sentence had been passed on Paul and he knew that his time, the time of his departure had come. So what does Paul ask Timothy to do in 2 Timothy? What do some of Paul's final instructions to Timothy include? It says to bring Mark to Rome since he would be useful to him. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, it says, Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. So this is amazing considering the rift that they had, they had early on. And Paul is at the end of his life and he wants to have Mark with him and says that Mark is very useful for him in ministry. The final reference to Mark is made in First uh, Peter chapter five verse thirteen, uh, where Peter calls Mark his son. 
Mark was in Rome laboring with Peter and we see that Peter calls Mark with an affectionate and endearing, endearing term, my son. So now what's left for us to do is to fill in the gap between when Mark left Barnabas and Paul to the time when he was restored to ministry usefulness. And this is most likely through the mentorship of Peter. If you remember, after Peter was miraculously freed from prison, he went straight to Mark's mother's house in Jerusalem. We know their connection turned into a great friendship as Peter became a spiritual father figure to Mark, referring to him as my son in 1 Peter 5.13. We also know that Mark was with Peter in Rome when Peter wrote 1 Peter. And Peter was a, the perfect influence for Mark, right? If anyone understood the process of restoration after failure, it was Peter. Peter had a number of moments himself, but none greater than denying Jesus. From the Gospel of John, we know that he was graciously restored by Christ after denying Jesus three times. And Peter's influence unquestionably helped Mark overcome the weaknesses and fluctuations of his youth so that he could faithfully accomplish what God had called him to do. And this is the Mark that is the author of the Gospel of Mark. And although Mark was not an original disciple, his close associate, association to the Apostle Peter prepared him for writing this Gospel. We know that Peter's influence had a profound effect on Mark, and the Gospel of Mark recounts much of Peter's teaching. In other words, Mark's Gospel represents primarily Peter's version of the life of Christ. So that's the author. Next, we have the audience. The audience answers the question, who is it written to? Or who is the audience? And this gospel targets a Gentile, a Gentile particularly Roman audience. Whereas Matthew is written to a Jewish audience, Mark writes to a Gentile Roman believers. And we see this in a number of places in the gospel of Mark. Now I won't get into too much detail at this point, but mainly state some facts and give you some verses for your consideration. We know Mark's audience because of several factors. First, when employing Aramaic terms, Mark translates them for his readers. For example, in Mark chapter 3, verse 17, he uses the Aramaic term Boanerges, and he translates it to sons of thunder. He provides the translation for his readers. Also, another example is in chapter 5, verse 41, where he's Jesus takes the little girl by her hand and says, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. Again, Mark translates the Aramaic for his readers to understand. Second, in some places, Mark uses Latin expressions instead of uh, the Greek equivalent. For example, in Mark chapter 5, verse 9, Mark uses the term, the Latin term, legion, legion, which defined a Roman military unit of about 6,000 infantrymen. And this would have been uh, something the Romans understood. Third, Mark also counted time to the Roman system using expressions such as the fourth watch of the night uh, in chapter 6, verse 48. Fourth, he carefully explained Jewish customs. Fifth, Mark omits Jewish elements such as genealogies that are found in Matthew and Luke. Sixth, while mentioning Simon the Cyrene in chapter 15 of verse 21, Mark identifies him as the father of Rufus. 
um, a prominent member of the church at Rome. Only Mark mentions this, and the added description of him being the father of Rufus is evidence of Mark's connection with the church at Rome. And all of this supports the view that Mark was written for a Gentile audience initially at Rome. And support also comes from the way that Mark pictures Christ. Christ, Jesus Christ in Mark is very active, energetic, swiftly moving, seen as one having authority over the destructive forces of nature, over disease, over demons, and even authority over death. And for the Romans, this would have um, got their attention. This would have perked up their ears hearing this because they were people who had conquered the, the whole world and they had a lust for power and authority. And Mark pictures Jesus not like a human earthly king or ruler who boasts in their power, who boasts in their armies, their rule, their victories. Rather, he pictures Jesus as one who doesn't gloat over the suffering of the conquered, but one who suffers in their place and with a view to their everlasting welfare. So he pictures Jesus as one who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Mark chapter 10 verse 45. Again, the Gospel of Mark is written to Gentile Roman believers. However, that doesn't mean that it has nothing to do with us. The book is evangelistic in nature because it's about Jesus Christ. The fact is, we're faced with the same truth and reality of who Jesus is just as much as those who it was written to. The Gospel of Jesus Christ is before our very eyes as we read this Gospel and it demands a response. So ask yourself these questions. What does it mean that Jesus is the Son of God? Is there a cost to following Him? It all comes down to this. If you're a sinner, you need Jesus Christ. And if you don't think you're a sinner, you still need Jesus Christ. God's plan of redemption, God's plan of the redemption of sinners has always been through Jesus Christ alone and it is received by grace alone through faith alone. And next, we have the arrangement. The arrangement answers the question, how is the book structured? Or what is the outline? So the Gospel of Mark is, again, the Gospel of action. It moves rapidly through narratives with frequent use of immediately and the word then. So we'll see frequently that Mark moves from um, scene to scene saying immediately so immediately this happened and then this happened and then this happened immediately 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 it's fast-paced it's full of action it's the shortest of all the gospels with only 16 chapters there's no birth narrative there's no early life of Jesus' upbringing in the gospel of mark luke and matthew have over a thousand verses whereas mark has only 661 verses Mark contains only one unique parable that is not in the other Gospels. It's the parable of the seed growing found in Mark chapter 4, verses 26 to 29. There are lots of miracle accounts, and they're all front-loaded in the first eight chapters of the book. There are 19 miracles total in Mark, and that's more miracles than there are chapters in the book. And 16 of the 19 miracles are found in the first eight chapters. Mark gives greater attention to the works of Jesus than to the words of Jesus. Or another way to put it, Mark gives more attention to the deeds of Jesus than to the sayings of Jesus.
And Mark's gospel has been described as a passion narrative with an extended introduction. The reason is that almost half of Mark's 16 chapters describe the final period of Jesus' ministry, namely his suffering, death, and resurrection. In the first 10 chapters, we see Jesus being sent by God to serve, right? His ministry taking place primarily in Galilee and the surrounding regions. And then in the second half of the book, we see Jesus being sent to save his ministry taking place in Jerusalem. So the first eight chapters demonstrate that Jesus is the Christ on the basis of his authoritative words and miraculous deeds. The final eight on the basis of his sacrificial death and glorious resurrection. And throughout the gospel, we see Mark leading us to the cross. In chapter 2, verse 17, it says, And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of, of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus came to save sinners. In chapter 8, verse 31, chapter 9, verse 31, and chapter 10, verse 33, Jesus foretells his death three times. And the third time in greatest detail. It says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. So Jesus not only came to save sinners, he's going to die for sinners. For all those who will repent and believe in him. And Jesus also came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many, Mark 10.45. We also know that everything in the book of Mark is centered on three great declarations. The first one comes in the first verse of the book. Chapter 1, verse 1 says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And everything after this point builds up to the second declaration the second one comes in the middle of the book in chapter 8, verse 29, where Jesus asks, But who do you say that I am? And Peter triumphantly declares, You are the Christ. The third declaration comes at the end of the book in chapter 15, verse 39, where the centurion in charge of the crucifixion, after seeing the way Jesus died, confessed, Truly this man was the Son of God. So stepping back for a moment now, we know that the Gospel of Mark is historical. We know that it's a, a, a account of a narrative. However, is it just history or is it just narrative? In other words, do we just read it to understand like any other history book? Or is there something more? Perhaps we are to declare that Jesus is the Son of God. Perhaps we are to de declare that Jesus is the Christ. Perhaps... We are to declare that truly this man, Jesus, was the Son of God. Jesus came to preach. He came to call sinners to repentance. And he came to give his life a ransom for many. And this book is not just to be read and understood. This book is to bring you to a verdict. This book is meant to bring you to either reject or embrace Jesus Christ. This book is meant for you to heed the words of Jesus in chapter 1 verse 15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So we see this book has eternal implications. In other words, the book is a matter of life and death. 
and we're going to see the life and works of Jesus on display. Are you going to follow him or are you going to turn your back on him? Let's turn to the next area, the aim. The aim answers the question, what is the purpose of the book? Why was it written? We know it's primarily written to present Jesus as the Son of God, chapter 1, verse 1. Mark wants his readers and us to know that Jesus is the Son of God. He is God in the flesh, and he's equal with God. We see the Son of God portrayed as the servant of man, as a suffering servant who came preaching, healing, teaching, and ultimately dying for the sins of many. And we see that Mark refers to Jesus by various titles, whether that be teacher, rabbi, son of David, Christ, Lord, son of man, or son of God. Son of God being unquestionably the most important. And it's being used both, it's used both in the beginning at the end of the gospel. And we see it in the again in chapter 1 verse 1 and also in chapter 15 verse 39 which is when the centurion confesses that truly this man was the son of god so the son of god mentioned at the beginning son of god mentioned at the end of the book kind of the bookends to the gospel so very simply the aim of the book is to show that jesus is the christ the son of god and therefore he should be followed so we've seen the author, the audience, the arrangement, and aim. Lastly, we'll look at application. Application answers the question, what are some of the major themes of the book? Why is this book important to us? And there are many themes to the book, which include discipleship, servanthood and service, the humanity of Christ, the gospel, the power of Satan, miracles, and faith. So first, in Mark, will get to walk with the disciples and see their strengths and weaknesses. Their times of strong faith and their times with, of faithlessness. Their times of boldness and their times of fear. Their times of joy and their times of sorrow. We will see how Jesus taught them, how he rebuked them, how he showed them compassion, how he prepared them to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. We'll learn what it means to be a true follower of Christ. In Mark chapter 8, verses 34 to 37, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? So we're going to learn what it means to be a disciple and what it means to make disciples. We're going to learn about how to be completely committed to Jesus Christ in every area of life. Not, and along with the disciples, we're going to see other groups of people as well. We're going to see the crowds, the scribes and the Pharisees, and the religious leaders. The crowds, for the most part, were a fan base that were hooked on a trending figure. They loved Jesus doing miracles and healing sickness and disease. However, they never saw Jesus for who he really was. They only followed him for the teachings, for the things he could do, for the things he could give them, but not for the salvation that he offered them. Their amazement and their astonishment ultimately never brought them to a saving knowledge of him. And let me ask you, how do you view Jesus? 
Is he a genie in a bottle who is supposed to grant your wishes? Is he like Santa Claus who gives you what you asked for? Is he a puppet who you can control to do whatever you want? Or is he God in whom you must fully submit and wholeheartedly commit to? Your view of Jesus will play a significant role in your life. Next, the scribes, Pharisees, and religious leaders were those who strongly opposed Jesus. And in Mark, we'll see a number of conflicts that they had with Jesus. They questioned him at every opportunity. They tried to trap him in multiple instances. They falsely accused him at every turn, but they could find no fault in him. Jesus was the Messiah before their very eyes, but they did not see or understand that he was who he claimed to be. They even charged him with blasphemy. So we're going to get an inside look at how Jesus responds to those who oppose him. We're going to learn that we, we will be opposed and attacked for our faith in Jesus. Second, in Mark, we're going to get to see the perfect example of servanthood and service. Jesus was the perfect example of true servanthood, even unto death. In Mark 10, verses 42 to 45, it says, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here, Jesus shows James and John that in the kingdoms of men, the test of greatness lays in the number of people you can control. Rather, in God's kingdom, it lays in the number of people one can help. He emphasizes that the highest honor to which a man could aspire consisted not in occupying the chief seats of the kingdom, but in serving other people. And as an example of this attitude, Jesus cites himself as the example who came to serve. So we're going to learn what the secret to greatness is. We're going to learn that it's not about us, but about others and about promoting the name and fame of Jesus Christ. We're going to learn what it means to have a spirit of humility. We're going to learn what happened at the cross, the humiliation, the rejection, the suffering, the wrath of the Father. And I, per and I, I know that it's not going to leave us the same. So to sum it up, we're going to learn about who Jesus really is. Third, in Mark, we're going to see the humanity of Jesus. More than any other gospel, we see the humanity of Jesus in the gospel of Mark. We're going to see that Jesus eats, chapter 2, verse 16. He drinks, chapter 15, verse 36. He becomes hungry, chapter 11, verse 12. He touches people, and people touch him as well. He becomes grieved, chapter 3, verse 5. He becomes indignant, chapter 10, verse 14. He falls asleep from fatigue and is awakened in the account of the, the, the stilling of the storm. He has a mother, brothers and sisters, chapter 6, verse 3. He asks that a boat be provided for him so that he may not be crushed, chapter 3, verse 9. We'll see that when Jesus is viewed as a man, his knowledge is limited, chapter 13, verse 32. For example, he has to turn around to see who touched him in chapter 5, verse 30. And he has to walk up to a fig tree to see whether it has edible fruit, chapter 11, verse 13. 
In Mark, we'll also see that he has a human body, chapter 15, verse 43, a human spirit, chapter 2, verse 8, and we'll see that he even dies in chapter 15, verse 37. However, the same Jesus is also fully divine. The Son of Man is also the Son of God, and he reigns supreme in the realm of disease, demons, and death. He heals diseases of every variety, casts out demons, cures the blind, the deaf, cleanses the leper, raises the dead. He exercises power over nature when he stills the winds and the waves, when he walks on water, when he causes a fig tree to wither and multiplies a few fish and some bread rolls so that it satisfies the hunger of thousands. His knowledge of the future is so detailed and comprehensive that he predicts what will happen to Jerusalem, to the world, to his disciples, and even of himself. He knows what is in men's hearts, and he knows their circumstances. And the climax of his majesty is revealed when he is put to death and he rises again. So Mark's aim is that everyone would embrace this Jesus Christ, the Son of Man and the Son of God, as their Lord and Savior. So some questions I want to pose to you at this point would be, why is it important that Jesus was both fully man and fully God? Did Jesus have to die? And why did so many people hate, reject, and oppose Jesus? So fourth, in Mark, we'll see the theme of secrecy. This theme of secrecy is sprinkled throughout the gospel. And on multiple occasions, Jesus tries to prevent people or demons from, taking, from talking freely about him, especially after performing a miracle. In several instances, Jesus avoids public notice and acclaim where it would seem fit to make himself known. An example of this is Mark chapter 1, verse 42 to 44, where Jesus, um, after he heals a man of leprosy, Jesus, it says, Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone. And there are many more examples just like that one. We're going to learn that it wasn't just random, but there's a rhyme and a reason for all the instances where Jesus seems to remain hidden and unknown. What Mark is trying to teach us is he's trying to teach us that until the cross, Jesus cannot be rightly known for who he, who he is. It's only at the cross that Jesus can be rightly known, not simply as a great moral teacher or as the most noble person who ever lived or as a miracle worker, but as the Son of God. At the cross, Jesus is revealed as the suffering Son of God whose rejection, suffering, and death reveal the triumph of God. And there are more themes, but this is enough to get us started and to challenge us. We haven't even touched on miracles. We haven't touched on faith or even the frequency in which Satan, unclean spirits, and demons are mentioned uh, in the book of Mark. And we've seen that although Mark is compact, although Mark is known for its brevity, we're not missing out on anything. It's fast-paced, action-packed, loaded with and overflowing with instruction and insight into the life and person of Jesus Christ. So the author, audience, arrangement, aim, and application. That completes the pregame. The big picture look at Mark has hopefully helped you to become more familiar and understand the background and context of the gospel. And although this is more informational than impactful, um, it does provide 
the groundwork and the foundation for us to understand the book that we're going to be studying. We've seen that the author Mark learned some painful lessons early on, but he later became useful to both the Apostle Paul and Peter. This is the man who writes this gospel. We've seen that it was written to Gentile audience and is therefore also evangelistic in nature, which speaks directly to us today. We've seen that the gospel of Mark isn't just a narrative, but it's also a book that demands a verdict. The gospel is good news, not good advice. Advice is something that is shared. It can be taken or left with no consequences. It's not grounded on anything other than opinion, and it lives in the realm of hypothetical and possibility. However, news is something that is broadcast and proclaimed and declared and evolves eternal consequences. It doesn't live in the realm of possibility. Rather, it speaks of something that has been done, something that has been accomplished. The good news of Jesus Christ is about what Jesus has done to accomplish salvation for sinners who would repent and believe in his perfect life, death, and resurrection. It is news that has eternal implications and therefore something to seriously consider. We've seen that the aim of the book is to present Jesus as the Son of God. We've also seen the many applications that come out of the text from the Gospel of Mark. So now we have the plate. The plate is prepared. It's time to serve food and ready ourselves to feast on the meal. My prayer is that as we study through the Gospel of Mark, that you would be ready to learn from the Master Teacher, Jesus Christ. And if you're a believer, I pray that as a result of reading, studying, and hearing the book preached, you would grow in all respects in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, that your faith would be strengthened, that your love for Christ and His Word would increase, and that you would become more mature in Christ. If you're not a believer, I pray that as a result of our study through Mark, that the Holy Spirit would open your eyes to see the sinfulness of your sin and the sinlessness of the Savior, Jesus Christ. That you would understand the severity of sin and the sweetness of Jesus. That you would repent and believe in Christ alone as the only way to be saved and forgiven of sin. And that you would embrace Jesus Christ and seek to follow Him in obedience as your Lord. So I can't wait to get started and next week we will begin our journey in the Gospel of Mark looking at chapter 1 verses 1 through 8. Let's pray. Father, we give you all praise and all thanks. We thank you for this Gospel. We thank you for this overview where we can learn that this is not just something to be read and understood. This is something that um, should change our lives, something that we need to understand who Jesus is in order that we may rightly worship Him. And we pray for those who know you that the study through this book would continue to sanctify them. We pray that those who don't know you, that through the study of this book, um, they would come to a saving knowledge of who you are. And we pray for all of us that we would be taught um, by the authority of your word, we would sit under your teaching, with full obedience and humility and that you would grow us into being more like Jesus Christ. In his name I pray, amen.